ButcherBox makes it easy and convenient to get the highest quality grass-fed, grass-finished beef, organic free-range chicken, heritage breed pork, and wild-caught seafood without any antibiotics or added hormones delivered straight to your door. For me, I love their ribeye steak with a smoke and reverse sear, their tender belly bacon, which is some of the best uncured bacon on planet Earth. ButcherBox partners with people, small farmers included, that treat their animals in the best possible way and never give any added antibiotics or hormones. When you join, you choose your box and delivery frequency. You can cancel at any time without any penalty, and ButcherBox delivers amazing and fresh meat right to your door in a 100% recyclable box. For a limited time only, get free chicken nuggets for a year and 10% off your first box when you sign up today and use the code WP. That's a 22-ounce bag of gluten-free organic chicken nuggets in every order for a year when you sign up at butcherbox.com forward slash WP and use the code WP. Green smoothies? Dry granola bars? Breakfast shouldn't be this bland. Enjoy a real, flavorful breakfast again with Smithfield bacon, sausage, and anytime favorites, ham. Smithfield Hometown Original Bacon is made by bacon lovers for bacon lovers. Naturally hickory smoked, Smithfield bacon is full of rich and delicious flavor. Made with the highest quality cuts of hand-trimmed pork that are perfectly seasoned, Smithfield Hometown Original Sausage Links will have you drooling for breakfast. Stop hitting the snooze button. Make a breakfast worth waking for with Smithfield. For the love of meat. To learn how to make a meatier, tastier breakfast, check out smithfield.com. Welcome to Western Contours Podcast, sharing experiences, providing insight, and looking for solutions to become better hunters. We talk gear, on and off season preparation, tips and tactics, conservation, and finding inspiration in the outdoors as sportsmen and women. Thank you for joining us as we share our love for all things Western hunting. Hey guys, today I have the privilege to sit down with Russell Kuhlman avid outdoorsman, wildlife scientist, and BHA coordinator for California and Nevada. Enjoy the episode. So we're on with Russell Kuhlman of BHA. Um, Russ, good morning. Thanks for sitting down with me, man, and, and catching up um, and getting some info out there for backcountry hunters and anglers and conservation. Good morning. Yeah, good morning excited to be here thank you um so we'll jump right into it man let's get a little background on yourself um you know tell us your outdoor story and then uh, we'll jump right into bha the the floor is yours yeah so my story is probably the you know you see you heard it once you heard it a million times uh, i actually grew up in upstate new york in the finger lakes area i uh, started fishing basically when I could hold a pole in my hands, uh, my dad would take me out. And then I started subscribing to these magazines called Outdoor Life. And I realized that half the magazine was focused on fishing. The other half was focused on hunting. And so I bothered him enough to actually uh, take my hunter ed course when I was 11, passed that and uh, started turkey hunting kind of right, right at age 12, which was the, the earliest time I could, I could go. But uh, so did that, grew up 
turkey hunting and deer hunting primarily, mainly with archery equipment, and then went to school at uh, Syracuse University, got my bachelor's in wildlife science, and then hopped on a plane and did uh, two years in North Africa and Morocco for the Peace Corps as an environmental education instructor. Nice. And so I, I helped what basically their version of the national park system is. Uh, so I lived in a national park over there, uh, taught people about uh, pollution, uh, climate change, uh, mainly pointed towards uh, high school students, but really just taught them the importance of, of conservation and how important the, the surrounding landscape is for them. And then came back to the States, moved to Wyoming, uh, was a seasonal ranger for the National Park Service up in uh, Black Hills and at Devil's Tower National Monument. I did that for a couple of years, then uh, kind of was a ski bum in Aspen. And then I got a job working as a civilian for the U.S. Army at Fort Riley, Kansas at the Skeet and Trap Range. And so I basically shot guns uh, <laughs> for the Army and got paid for it, which uh, not a bad I never know. No, I'll, I'll never complain about that. And then uh, kind of, I got a job in, in California with another nonprofit originally, uh, Testing Ammunition. This uh, nonprofit I used to work for basically decided, well, if, we, if the state of California has to go non-lead, we might as well do some testing and help some people out as far as, you know, what they should try, what, what options are out there for them. And so that was my job all throughout California was to basically uh, shoot ballistic shell and, and water jugs with different bullets and then talk to a sportsman's organization, uh, rancher, cattlemen associations, and just answer any questions that people had about uh, having to switch over to, to non-lead. And it was definitely a, a hot button issue. And I, I think it still is. Still is, but, yes. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. And so kind of the, the first stance I took on the whole thing was uh, education is key. And uh, my coming out of that, I, I realized that whenever you tell somebody they have to do something, uh, chances are they don't like doing that. Uh, and I think uh, that goes over no matter what the situation is. But then I kind of got my foot in the door with the conservation community within uh, California and then the BHA job opening for the California Nevada coordinator uh, position opened up. I applied. And then I, my first week was actually rendezvous in Boise of last year. Oh, wow. So it was uh, a a pretty intense orientation to say the least. Mm -hmm. And we've been just kind of hitting the ground running with California ever since. So California. So I'm going to just take us off on a quick tangent because I live in California. You live in California and the whole non-lead versus lead deal. Uh, this year is the first year where it's statewide in full effect. Um, and one of the actually it was in a conversation with someone, I don't know, earlier this week. And they said, well, is this really backed up by science? Are they showing proof that, you know, the condors are being affected by lead? Do you have any stance on that or any information on that? Uh, I think the science is pretty sound uh, and it's pretty repeatable. Uh, and, and that's kind of the, the most important thing. As long as it's repeatable science, I think that's what creates sound science. Mm-hmm. In my personal opinion, uh, any, anybody can test something and have an outlier and then focus on that one thing. Right. Uh, but every time it seems like from my knowledge, they test the condors, they do have uh, elevated blood levels and there is science that ties it back to ammunition. Uh, but again, uh, I think outreach and education uh, would would be the solution going into the future if any other uh, 
state or agency ever decided to talk about non-lead to their, their hunting public, mm-hmm. because in <clears throat> my experience, people would definitely come up to me pretty hot under the collar about that whole topic and just giving them just the, the basic information about uh, lead fragmentation and the properties of copper and the bonding of lead and, and all the kind of minutiae that goes into ballistics. It, it makes sense when you actually look at it, but uh, obviously within the hunting community, when myths get started and things, we are, <laughs> we always kind of, feel like we're always playing defense. Yes. And I feel like that's what a lot of people in California felt like. Uh, uh, it almost was like one night they went to bed, able to shoot lead and, and no one seemed to care. And the next night they woke up and they were told they had to use copper because everything was dying from lead. Uh, I, I feel like there could have been better education on that topic. Right. And, but it's been a while. I mean, that, that started, I believe it was 2008, uh, when they first started, uh, trying to affect ranges and that's grown, you know, statewide in the, you know, what is it? We're in 2019. So that's five years, man. I mean, that's a lot of time to kind of sit back and hopefully I don't offend anybody, but ignore the fact that it was going to take effect. So now there's this shock and awe, but five years is a long time. That's a lot of planning for it. And I know I, for me, I made the switch as soon as I saw it. One of my main hunting areas was one of the first affected. So yeah, that's a, I, th- I think the resistance to it is why the, you know, oh gosh, we have to do that this year, but five years is enough time to plan and prep for that, man. Yeah. And I, I think it, it definitely came from the science community as far as finding out that lead did pose an issue within gut piles on scavenging wildlife, mm-hmm. but it got out of their hands very rapidly uh, when other organizations kind of got that and pushed it towards more of the political side than the, the scientific side. And, and that's where things really started getting out of hand is when various organizations kind of took the ball and, and, and ran with it and more or less didn't really reach out to the sportsman's community of, on, on their thoughts on the, on the topic. And that's another fight here in the state, right? Because our numbers, as far as the sportsman's community, especially when you look at hunting, our numbers are, are small, small. Oh yeah. I mean, you, uh, it's one of those things where you can cherry pick data all day long to, to suit your narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can say that there's a, a million hunters in California, which there are, but when you look at the 38, 40 million people that live in California, that ratio is yeah. far, far too small compared to other States where you talk to, I'm kind of just making these general numbers up in my head, but I know in New York, let's say you have a million hunters, but that ratio is you know, 5% or so. Right. And, especially, and that ratio gets higher once you get into those more Midwestern states or any state that's traditionally hunting based, for instance, Montana, Idaho, like they still have a couple hundred thousand hunters, but that's basically their whole population in that state. So mm-hmm. we do have the, the voice I would say within California, because when we do ask for something from California, the, the companies and industry are, are definitely listening to us in, in California. It might not seem like that really ever, but they definitely have their ear pointed towards California as far as our, our needs and wants. I'm, I'm actually surprised to hear that, but you know, that doesn't, I'm not the educated source on it. Um, cause I would, yeah. I would be in the stance that, you know, they're, 
they're not really listening because those numbers are so low. Right. And, and uh, you know, we can, we can talk about non-lead all day and, but I guess that's one prime example when that's, when that first band came up in California, there was only, we'll say Barnes and maybe Nosler eat tips out in the market. Mm-hmm. But now with this uh, mandatory band coming in effect this year, there's, you know, I think every manufacturer is producing some tor- some type of, of non-lead bullet. And I feel that's very connected to the, the needs for California sportsmen. Because uh, not uh, other than maybe outside of Oregon and Arizona, uh, there's no really other state pushing to, for voluntary use of, of non-lead. And so that market of all those new non-lead bullets on the market today, I think are strictly coming from the need uh, that California sportsmen have voiced uh, that uh, demand for. Yeah. Well, uh, thank goodness for that. Right. We'd be in trouble. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. <laughs> we would be in trouble. So I'm sorry for that tangent, man. So let's, you know, get back on, get back on our focus here. Um, why don't we, uh, so, so one of the big things for me is conservation on a whole or a conservation overview. Let's, can we hear it from, you know, your side or BHA's side? Um, because there's a lot of misconceptions when it comes to conservation, a lot of, you know, jargon, if you will. What is BHA's or Russell's definition of conservation? Well, our, our mission statement isn't very long. It's, it's one or two sentences. And, and right in there, it says, our mission is to become this leading sportsman's voice for wild public lands, water and wildlife. And I feel that's what we're doing. And given today's climate, uh, even going back into the sixties and seventies, but before that time, conservation organizations were hunting organizations. Mm-hmm. They were the only players on the, on the landscape. Uh, and then you kind of had this split right around the, the clean water act era where you had organizations that would say they're conservation groups, but were not really involved in hunting or fishing activities. And I think we lost a little bit of that from the hunting community. So BHA is really kind of that new kid on the block that is 100% dedicated to conservation. And we're going to do it through hunting and fishing and our advocacy for, for public lands and, and water. So you said new kid on the block. I believe it was founded in 2004. Yeah. Uh, BHA was founded in 2004 in Oregon at Mike Beagle's uh, backyard. And so he's kind of credited for being the, the, the godfather of BHA since it started in his backyard. Uh, we have an award named after him uh, for once a year. And that award goes to the person who most represents uh, BHA as a whole. Mm-hmm. But when you compare, say, us to the Rock Mountain Elk Foundation or Ducks Unlimited, we are definitely the, the freshmen in, in school in those terms. But making a huge impact. Yeah. And so our, uh, our membership is only 30,000 members as of last month. But our, our voice is, oh, uh, is deceiving because we're a lot louder than that than what our membership would uh, lead you to believe mm-hmm. uh, we, we uh, <clears throat> comment on anything regarding public access uh, you know, and hunting and fishing rights. And I think we're very good at it. And all of that comes from our members. Our members are kind of our, 
our eyes and ears on the ground. And so we are, we have a pretty open door policy within BHA. And if a member comes to us and says, Hey, I'm, I'm from this area and I'm seeing this issue, you know, we're not afraid to, to run it all the way up the, the chain and turn around and, and voice our opinion about it or, you know, stand up for that hunting and fishing small community. And I think that's what gives us such a loud voice is we we're open to, to any ideas and we're willing to listen to, to anyone if it involves conservation. So you, you said numbers. So that's one of the things that that slaps me in the face when I see it. So if we if we refer to California in 2018, there was one point six nine million uh, hunting licenses sold in the state. Um, but our California membership for BHA is, I believe, is floating around uh, the 1700 mark. Yeah, right around that 16, 1700 mark. Uh, we increased about, I think, 40% last year as far as membership goes. So we're still growing. And I'm very hopeful for BHA in California because 2018 was really the first year we were at, uh, let's say, full capacity. Uh, before that and, and before I joined, we only had three or four board members and they were all very busy and, and very active in BHA, but there's only so much three or four people can do in the whole state of California. And so a lot of our events were pretty localized. And last year we added uh, 10 new people everywhere from Redding, California, all the way down to San Diego. And we did about 27 events last year. Mm-hmm. And most of those events were uh, pint nights and just really getting the word out that BHA was in California. So I think we're posed this year to do a lot more kind of boots on the ground activities, uh, public land cleanups, uh, working with the BLM, working with the Forest Service, uh, providing comments on state legislation, federal legislation, because we uh, we kind of kicked a little ass last year as far as getting the word out about BHA and, and the membership growth kind of shows that. And so we, uh, we have pretty big plans for, for this year also. Yeah. Cause it was a pretty phenomenal push. I know that the announcement was made, I believe that was in September, um, to take it from, you know, mid 20 thousands up to 30,000. And, uh, I think the goal was exceeded, uh, in a real short period of time. So that was exciting. Yeah. And this time last year at the national level, we were hovering around about 15,000 people. Wow. And so we, we succeeded in, in doubling our membership. And this year uh, we're, we're going to try to push for, for 50,000 people. And as I was saying earlier, our, our voice is very loud at 30,000 members. Mm-hmm. So I can only imagine how, how much of a, a major player we're going to become in the conservation world when we hit 50,000. It's going to be uh, some, some people are going to definitely take notice of BHA as far as a, a hunting and fishing conservation organization, for sure. Mm-hmm. So there seems to be, at least in my opinion, there seems to be a gap. So for me, um, you know, I've been hunting probably close to 20 years, um, but there was a gap of time where it didn't mean what it means. Um, you know, you go, you in here in California, you go, you take your hunter safety course and you, you always hear, you know, hunting is conservation. And when you buy your tags, when you buy your license, uh, this money is going to conservation. But how do we, 
how do we attack that gap in time? So when a guy is taking his, you know, or a woman is taking their hunter safety course, um, how do we get them to understand that 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 is not enough, or is it enough? I I, I could be wrong there. Um, in my opinion, it's not. We need to have that that political powerhouse, if you will, helping like BHA does, you know, going to the state legislature uh, and whatnot. But how do we shorten that or close that gap in time to show the importance right off the bat? Yeah, and this is definitely a, a sweet spot for me personally, and I can go down multiple rabbit holes uh, on this topic. Uh, I think what the hunting community needs to do maybe a better job of is telling our members just within the general hunting community about Pittman Robertson and how it was formed, you know, 1937 uh, Democrat and Republican came together and said, Hey, you know, we, we've talked to the hunting community. They're willing to tax themselves more or less during the depression, um, the, the worst economic times that this country has ever seen arguably. Uh, and we decided to put a 11% tax on ourselves to fund habitat restoration and open up access and, and make sure that there's animals on the landscape for, for us to pursue and, and enjoy. Uh, I hunt with a, a group of people back in New York. I've been hunting with them since I was about 12 years old and they hunt once a year and it's for one week during opening week of shotgun season. Mm-hmm. And they, they buy their bullets, they buy a new gun maybe every couple of years, but I guarantee you they don't know anything about Pittman Robertson or, or where that level percent tax on their ammunition is going to. Mm-hmm. And I feel it would be common sense in my opinion that, you know, everyone should know if you, if you buy ammo, whether you're a hunter or just a recreational shooter, it doesn't matter that that money is going back to conservation. And I feel that's a huge feather in the cap for us. And I believe we don't utilize it to its fullest extent. I'm, I'm on social media quite a bit and I definitely see anti-hunting posts and things like that. And one of the major responses I see from a hunter is, well, we're controlling the the deer population or, or something along those lines. Right. Weak arguments. And, right. And I, I don't see a whole lot of, well, our tax dollars that we self-imposed are helping to fund habitat for more deer or more sheep on the landscape or, or more ducks. Uh, and I think that's something that maybe, and going back to Hunter Ed, I'm a, a California Hunter Ed instructor. And I know for a fact that's in there and in, in the booklet that we have to read to take the test. But, you know, if I kind of was kind of king for a day, it would almost be a whole chapter dedicated to Pittman Robertson and not just maybe a, a paragraph in the book. And it's pretty easy to sum up. Like I have a little bullet here, right? So just to, for the folks that don't know, uh, the Pittman-Robertson Act it established a funding mechanism for wildlife conservation through an excise tax. Um, and it's on sporting arms, ammunition, and then later um, archery equipment, handguns. So that fund that's collected is by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And via the wildlife restoration program. And then the, I, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, the way that the funds are appropriated to the states is based on the number of paid licenses, I, I think, and the land area or something. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, land area plays a big part of it. So California gets more or less the lion's share pretty regularly. Uh, 
uh, Texas is kind of the, the other big one. Uh, and I guess it's important to mention that if the state doesn't use that money, I believe it goes into the migratory bird fund. Oh, wow. So even if the, the state doesn't use it, it still is being used by the federal government for migratory birds. Cause they have a handle. They're the one that sets the, the season dates and things like that. Mm-hmm. So no matter where that money goes, it's going back into habitat awesome. in wildlife. Correct. Which yeah. is pretty unusual, <laughs> right? A right. lot of times Especially, they'll have loopholes to grab that money and use it for, for other things. Exactly. And I guess LWCF, um, another just amazing conservation uh, tool. Mm-hmm. And, and for people that don't know, uh, LWCF stands for the, the land and water conservation fund, which is offshore drilling royalties that get put into a big fund and distributed throughout uh, every state in the United States. And it's funded projects in actually every County in the United States, wow. whether that's uh, a bike path or a swing set and a playground all the way up to wildlife refuges, buying, buying land to open up to public access. And that historically was a pretty bipartisan issue up until this year. And, and maybe the last time I was up for, for argument, but uh, the LWCF, that money we're talking, you know, it's, it's authorized up to $90 million. Typically we get about $450 million uh, every reauthorization, but people definitely fight tooth and nail to, to get some of that money to fund their own personal projects in, in Congress. Mm-hmm. But the, uh, the Pittman Robertson act, that's, that's solid. That's, that's going back to habitat, whether you like it or not, which is, I, I think it's awesome. So the LWCF, that was kind of in jeopardy this year, right? I mean, that was, I think that was the longest hold they had on it. And it was up for, uh, they were basically re-signing it to reinstate it. It expired, but it looked like it was in quite a bit of threat. Yeah, it, it kind of still is. Uh, it sunset in, uh, on September 30th of, of last year. And uh, we, it was included in the public lands package at the very end of the 115th Congress, which was the last Congress we had. But uh, Senator Mike Lee didn't agree with the the whole package because it wasn't just LWCF. There was a multitude of other bills and and things in there. Uh, And he didn't like some of the other language of uh, what was in there. And so he kind of torpedoed the whole thing. And so LWCF wasn't reauthorized, but uh, talking to... People in D.C., I'm hopeful that as soon as this, I I guess the government opened yesterday, Mm -hmm. but uh, I've been hearing it's going to be one of the first things we we see as far as a introduced bill is to get that back up and running. Because right now, all those projects I talked about, swing sets, bike paths, uh, habitat improvement, all that's on hold because that that money is more or less frozen right now. And so that's, that's what's affecting the hunting community about this shutdown is all those projects that would open up hunting recreation access are in limbo. That's, that's pretty amazing to me, man. That one, that one guy could have an issue with it and that holds that up. I, that just seem, I, I, it just seems odd to me. Yeah. And, and I guess the, the frustrating part on my end is he had, <clears throat> I don't know if he had issues with LWCF or not, but that's not why he 
held up that bill. Uh, he more or less held up that bill because in Utah, he wanted to more or less eliminate the Antiquities Act within Utah. Mm-hmm. And that language was in the, the public lands package. And that's why he torpedoed it. So this LWCF is probably the closest thing you can get to just a bipartisan issue because it's not costing the taxpayer dollars any money. Um, it's not costing the, the taxpayers because it's oil and gas revenue from, from offshore. And it goes to fund basically every type of public uh, recreation. Um, and I can't think of anything wrong with it, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, why we shouldn't have it and why it shouldn't be authorized when it comes up every couple of years. That's something else that, yeah, that you, you said it, man, that's a deep, dark rabbit hole. (laughs) (laughs) Um, okay. So back on track here, let's, uh, talk about BHA a bit and get uh, a broader background on BHA and what BHA stands for. Uh, you kind of said it with the mission statement. Uh, yeah. And, and so <clears throat> I guess going even farther back is the, the reason BHA was founded uh, was because we have great organizations like the, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Ducks Unlimited, uh, Mule Deer Foundation. But they were really only focused on you know, increasing those single species. And you know, we'll take the National Wild Turkey Federation. Uh, they actually had to change their mission statement because when they first started, their goal was to put turkeys back on the landscape. Well, they succeeded and you know, went far beyond maybe what they originally had hoped for mm-hmm. because you can turkey hunt in California and they're not even native here. <laughs> and right. so they, they did a great job, but no one was really addressing the public access in order to get to those animals mm-hmm. in order to hunt. And one thing that as Americans, we've always prided ourselves on is how we're not like Europe in, in the terms of, you know, having the King's land. And if you shoot a deer, you're technically poaching because the King owns, King owns everything. Right. And, that was kind of one of the first things that we separated ourselves from when we came to America was we're, we're not going to do that. Everything's open to the public in terms of, in terms of land. And we really just tried to keep what Theodore Roosevelt had in mind as far as multiple use. And, you know, we don't like to see having to pay for, for access and uh, which, you know, I'm not a, a man's of means. I'm definitely not becoming a millionaire uh, working for fruit for BHA. So I rely very heavily on public lands mm-hmm. in order to, to do what I, what I love. Um, and that's you know, hunting and fishing are probably obviously the top two, but backpacking, rock climbing. Uh, and I might actually get into uh, some recreational gold mining because I live kind of just outside of Bakersfield. So we're not that far away from the Sierras, but you know, I can do all those things and I don't have to ask permission from anyone to do those things. If I wanted to, uh, you know, after this podcast, if I wanted to get in my car and drive to public land and go fishing and as long as the season were open, I could, I could do that. Uh, and I had a, a fishing license from the state, which I'm happy to pay for because all of that money goes back into to conservation when you buy a, a hundred year fishing license. Mm-hmm. And so that's really what BHA was founded on was making sure that we have access to 
all these wildlife, these other organizations did a great job at providing. We're just uh, making sure that you can go and go and chase them and not have to pay a, a trophy fee for them. Right. Which would kill our numbers considerably as, as outdoors men and women. I mean, that would just yeah. absolutely wipe us out. And the last thing we need as a community is one more hurdle to get new hunters involved in, in this uh, pastime. Yeah. Especially with the opposition having a, a larger voice. Exactly. So what are we, what are we up against as sportsmen and women? I mean, what are the, the challenges when it comes to our public lands? Talk a bit, a little bit about that fight. Uh, <clears throat> I guess it's kind of a, a two pronged and we can kind of go down two rabbit holes here. But the, the first thing I'll, I'll say is I feel as sportsmen and women, we need to start educating the non hunting public about what hunting does and fishing does for conservation. Uh, my, uh, and, and you see it probably just as much as I do in California. A lot of times these organizations will try to introduce a bill to ban hunting or it's mainly hunting. I, I don't think a whole lot of people have an issue with fishing currently, but more times than not, it fails going through the, the legislative route. And then they take it and try to turn it into a voter initiative uh, process or, or, or poll. Mm-hmm. Uh, and outside of California, that's kind of what they did with, I think, black bears in New Jersey and uh, Maine. I think they tried to do it legislative, didn't work. And so they put it up to the voters. Well, most voters don't know a whole lot about hunting or fishing. And so it's very easy to play on emotion and get people riled up to view hunting as bad. And I think <clears throat> kind of the one thing on my little crusade is or kind of what gets me frustrated is, uh, for instance, the, the mountain lion band in, in California. I feel when people did that, they assumed that no mountain lion was ever going to get shot ever again. And that's not true. It's just now up to the state to contract people or to issue depredation permits in order to go shoot those mountain lions. And there's, I've talked to, to people within the, the fish and game, or I guess fish and wildlife, and they issue more depredation permits per year than the last three legal hunting years combined as far as a harvest. Wow. And so more mountain lions are getting killed every year than the last three combined years that legal hunting was allowed. Uh, and I, you know, I think that's something that slips the public's mind a lot of times. And I think that's what we need to start doing as far as the sportsman community is letting people know that, you know, the, the wildlife services for the government, they, they're, they're pretty active in California right. because we, we've banned so much trapping and so much hunting for these, these predators. And, and that's an effect on tax dollars, right? Because if we're paying for tags and licenses in the state to go hunt these animals legally, now they pull that away from us and the normal tax dollar, the non-hunter, if you will, um, is flipping that bill. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, I think it's a little bit ironic because, uh, I'm starting to hear a lot of rumblings about how the fish and wildlife department is really underfunded. Well, when you ban certain hunting, 
for animals hurt that funding, which traditionally that money goes back into fish and game. Mm-hmm. Well, when you ban those animals, where do you expect the money to, to come from now? So it's almost like uh, giving them a pay cut and then turning around and complaining that, you know, how come you're, you're not doing everything that you were supposed to be doing. And, and we can start tying that into the whole, you know, bear hunting thing here in California. I mean, it's only a matter of time before we see the number of tags being sold for bear hunting declining. Uh, we, we haven't met the quota in over five years, I think, since they, you know, allowed the or banned the use of dogs in hunting. So I think the quota for the state this year was 1,700. I think it closed at around 1,200. So at some point, less and less guys um, are going to purchase that tag. If the if the success rates aren't there, if they're looking at those quota numbers and seeing a, you know, point one as far as success, a lot of guys don't want to spend the thirty five dollars. And that'll be another hit to that funding. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, from, from my perspective, and, and this is just kind of me thinking off the top of my head, but, you know, if we opened up or petitioned to get a spring bear hunting season, mm-hmm. you know, maybe we would then fill that quota because in California, as far as hunting goes outside of pigs and maybe turkeys, I don't know of any really open seasons in that April May, June, uh, timeframe. None. And it's non-existent. So, you know, you would think that we could go to the state and say, Hey, how about a spring bear hunting season? But (laughs) you know, you can only imagine how that would go over in California. Right. And at, and at some point those, so those numbers, that quota, uh, should be something that biologists come with and say, hey, this is the number that we need to pull out of the population to maintain a healthy population, which in turn helps habitat and helps population of, you know, other animals or the prey, you know, fawn, things of that nature. Yeah, it, it just seems like it's more political than anything here in this state. It's frustrating. It could definitely be viewed in, in, in those in that way, uh, I guess one more example I'll bring up is the, the L.A. coyote problem. Oh, um, man. And so now you have Fish and Game creating a whole different program just to inform L.A. residents about coyotes and you know what not to do and how to act around them. Where all you, you know, again, this is me speaking as Russell, not PHA, mm-hmm. but... Uh, you know, if you had more hunters within that L.A. area, you wouldn't see coyotes. I've, I've personally seen coyotes run through my wife's parents' house in downtown Pasadena mm-hmm. at 12 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, and so now you have fish and game personnel dealing with those issues and not on the, the landscape enforcing hunting laws and making sure there's no poachers out there because they're all busy chasing coyotes in, in downtown L.A. Yeah, it, it's crazy. I So I'm in the Long Beach area and uh, I live, there's a nursery that backs my house. And if I have, you know, a, a fire engine or a police car or ambulance or something go by, man, they go crazy. Um, and people shake oh, yeah. their head and go, no way. I've had them on my roof chasing cats, you know, so and, and I'm urban, man. I'm as urban as it gets. You know, I'm, you know, at least a 30 minute drive from the foothills. So, yeah, it, that uh, it's big. Yeah, and you know, I I think bears are going to be the next on that list. Uh, You're 
like you said, you're in that that urban area, but they're already starting to come into La Cañada and in those areas that are kind of on the the fringes of the foothills. Right. It's it's not too 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 rare to see a, a news article about a bear stuck in a tree or a bear in it in her cubs in a swimming pool. Jacuzzi. <laughs> yeah, and, and more or less those those Pasadena's La Cañada's areas, which is they butt up right against those hills. And part of that too, I mean, when you do see those news articles, it's it's cute, warm, and fuzzy. You know, oh, look at them in the pool or look at them in the jacuzzi. And we're not talking about the threat that they pose to a small child. Um, if it's a, a sow with cubs, you know, anybody is, is in trouble at that point. Yeah, and it just goes back to carrying capacity and uh, a habitat. You know, they're, they're not going in there because they want to check out the jacuzzi, they're going in there to to look for food and habitat because they're getting pushed out by by other bears. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a rough one. All right, sorry, that's a that's a rabbit hole there. So okay, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, back to back to what we're up against, man. Yep, and, and so uh, so that was the definitely the the one prong there. I would say that the other issue that we as, as, for, as sportsmen face that BHA is addressing is kind of just the, the clean water and making sure our land is pristine to be used for future generations. And we take a lot of our guidance from Theodore Roosevelt, who definitely did not have an easy job and, and definitely made a lot of industry people upset. Uh, you know, back in that time, it was the lumber industry and, maybe a little bit of the railroad, but you know, those industries were ready in place to just clear cut Montana and Idaho. And he had the courage to kind of stand up and say, no, like you can obviously have, you know, your, your, your chunk of it, but we need to preserve these lands for future generations. I think it was, uh, uh, I should know this quote by heart, but it's you know something along the lines of um, we're holding these lands in the, for future generations that are already in the womb of time or, or something along those lines. Sorry for, for butchering that. Quote, but, and so, you know, we're just making sure his legacy maintains that. Uh, and I've definitely seen some, some attacks on BHA as, Oh, we're, we're anti-mining or anti this or anti that. Um, absolutely not. Um, we're, we're all for the responsible, use of of mining and extraction industries but uh, going into the headwaters that feed a a native trout stream that brings in a huge revenue source for that community and having that industry say that they want to more or less pollute that for copper mining or gold mining you know someone's got to say no maybe that's crossing the line there in, in, in those terms and so that's, I feel, what, what BHA does on the larger uh, high-level landscape view is we want to make sure that our, our future generations have the same opportunities that we do. Mm-hmm. And those opportunities include backpacking into the wilderness for seven days or, or floating the, the Smith River in northern California or being able to be a California resident and going to uh, New Mexico on an elk tag and shooting your, your first elk, like I did this past year, mm-hmm. 
I, I put in for New Mexico. I drove the, the 15 hours. I found public land. I, I didn't have to sign a permission slip. I didn't have to pull up my checkbook. I walked in, saw, camped out for three days, saw 150 elk, and was able to be successful. And uh, I can tell you that I'm, I'm willing to, to stand up and fight so future generations can experience what I did. So you, you mentioned something there, um, and you've mentioned it a couple times, you know, getting out and backpacking or getting out and kayaking. So a lot of what we see, unfortunately, is sportsmen or women or outdoors men and women up against each other. Um, so if you look at, you know, maybe a trail runner doesn't approve of hunting or, you know, doesn't want mountain bikers in. That in itself as outdoors folks we're we're fighting ourselves and not realizing the bigger picture um with the opposition that's against all of it right and and getting into those mining companies um and things of that nature i mean when when are we going to wake up yeah and, and that's what i was kind of super proud of uh, what bha did last year and when i was explaining what bha is you know our as long as you're willing to talk about conservation, you know, you have a seat at our table to, to talk about it. And a great example of that was Patagonia last year. You know, Patagonia is definitely not known for hunting or fishing, mm-hmm. but they're known for rock climbing, backpacking, you know, but other, you know, we'll say every other outdoor activity except for hunting and fishing. Right. And so we, we work together on quite a bit. Are we going to agree on every single issue all the time? Absolutely not. But can we agree on conservation? Yes. And so does that mean that we're going to try to work together and put our little petty differences aside for the most part, if it means the greater good? Yeah, we're, we're going to have that conversation every single time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what I personally am, am proud about BHA and is we're willing to, to open the door and have a table. And if you want to talk conservation, Let's chat. I don't care what your background or uh, organization is, but you know that's. Uh, I, I think that's a great example of us reaching, we'll say, across the table and working with a company like Patagonia for for the the capital letter C in conservation. Right. So, how do we talk conservation? Because a lot of hunters, unfortunately, use very weak arguments. Right? You hear, "Oh, it's meat in the freezer." hunters, you know, take care of herds, et cetera, et cetera. We need to have an educated voice when we start talking about conservation and not use what I call cop-out arguments. And it's almost, you know, it almost falls on deaf ears when that's all you hear. Yeah. Yeah. And so kind of, if I was to create a a how-to book for hunters on conservation, the, the first half of the book would be understanding the North American model for wildlife, uh, you know, conservation and hunting and fishing play a huge role in our model for conservation. Every other country in this world has their own template in, in how they view conservation. Ours is called the, the North American model. And what that means is, Hunter and fishermen go out, they pay license fees, they pay, uh, you know, Pittman Robertson, ammo, shotgun, you know, anything hunting or fishing. And that money is what funds habitat and wildlife. 
And that's how it's a closed loop circle. So the more uh, people you have out hunting and fishing, the more money you get and the more you can do with to protect wildlife and make sure that they're going to be on the landscape for, for future generations. Mm -hmm. So without, so, Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I just wanted to wrap it up. And obviously <laughs> with the decline in, in hunting and, and maybe a little bit fishing, but mainly hunting, you know, we're seeing a, a pretty rapid decline in that. And so those, those funds are going to become less and less. And we need to start being pretty creative of how we're going to get more people involved in the, the outdoor world. And there's a program nationwide called the, the R3 program, which is to uh, recruit, uh, renew, and reactivate. I think something along those lines. But uh, And so we, on a national level, we are actively trying to get more hunting and fishing people involved. And within BHA, we actually just hired a R3 coordinator specifically for this job uh, to, to get new hunters. And one of the strategies that we're doing is reaching out to colleges and seeing if there's a need for, you know, people that are in college that maybe not have hunted in the past that are a little intimidated because it is a, a huge learning curve. And we're, ho we're hoping to, uh, lessen that curve and get people out in the field. And so we work a lot with the, the Boone and Crockett club and we go on their, their piece of land that uh, they have quite a bit of deer in, in Montana. And we uh, take those new hunters out. Uh, they harvest the deer and we show them from A to Z what to do, uh, whether, you know, everything from scouting to shooting to gutting to cooking and processing their own meat. And it's been, wildly successful and we're hoping to expand that yeah that's awesome but, you know the long-term vision of that is they're going to go back and tell their friends who didn't hunt like hey you know this was a really interesting experience and this is something that i'm going to be doing i think for the rest of my life mm -hmm. and so that's our strategy to get more people involved which is going to in turn create a larger funding source so we can do more for wildlife and, and habitat Hi, this is Weston Jenkins with Disabled Outdoorsman, the founder of an organization where we choose and let individuals come in the outdoors. We have many people across the nation that refuse to give up, and our brand is going to represent them, and now you can too. You can go to our website at www.disabledoutdoorsman.com, or you can find us on Instagram at DisabledOutdoorsmanUSA. We want you to be a part of the cause with us, and let's make a difference one day at a time. And that's pretty important. I mean, one of the one of my points with conservation is hunter recruitment and hunter retention. You know, the numbers the numbers show that there's a decline and we get guys in or, or women in that struggle for four or five years and then they're you know they're out of it. Um, but that's a big deal. I, I think that's part of conservation or or you know not to sound too cliche, but conserving the hunt, if you will, is that recruitment and that retention, especially for the new folks. Yep. Yeah. And sorry, that's what that, that second R was. It's uh, recruitment, retention and reactivation. Oh, okay. Uh, awesome. I'm on the right yeah, track. Then. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, no worries. Uh, uh, but yeah, and I couldn't agree more. And I think we may go down another rabbit hole here, but you know, these youth hunts that a lot of states are doing are 
incredible. And I think that's a step in the right direction, mm-hmm. but I feel the, the gap is created between, uh, you know, those, those kids going out to hunt. And a lot of times they're more or less, we'll say hundred uh, percent successful hunts. And they do that for a couple of years and then they turn 18 and no longer can apply for those youth hunts. And then they're kind of thrown out into the, the grown up world with no real education on how to really hunt or, or what hunting's really like. And so they go those four or five years without even seeing an animal and then they, they stop hunting. Right. Throw in the towel. Um, and, and that's where that retention plays a big part is we need to have that transition from youth hunts to, you know, kind of on your own. We need to smooth that road out a, a little better. I feel. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things like I, I focus on myself is if I know a new hunter or a guy that's struggling is to help him out, you know, um, but you see a lot of selfishness, you know, guys don't want to share honey holes or they don't want to, you know, point a guy to a spot that they know might hold or a spot close to theirs because they're going to, you know, mess up their opportunity. But man, it's, it's so important to keep our community growing and our community strong that we got to look past that selfishness um, and, and get these folks, man, you know, laying them down and meeting the freezer or whatever it is. Yeah. And personally, I have no qualms about sharing hunting locations because a lot of times where I go, you know, my whole strategy is to go where people don't go. And there's a reason people don't want to go to to the spots I hunt primarily is because they are not fun hikes (laughs) and they're up and down and through brush and crossing rivers. And so if someone asks me where to go, I, I have no problem telling them where to go. And if they want to do the same trip I did, well, then I at least know they're legit and Mm -hmm. they actually want to go. Uh, But I obviously do have people that just kind of want to give, that want me to give them the the easy, go go to this parking lot and hike a hundred yards in and sit down. Right. There it is. Especially California. (laughs) Those, those places don't exist in California. Not so I, I don't know um, what, what they were hoping to find. But again, uh, for instance, I was in Montana, uh, well, December, middle of December, and I wanted to go duck hunting. So I brought my shotgun. And uh, Ty Stubblefield, who's uh, our, our new chapter coordinator for new chapters coming on board, he he was more than willing to, to share a couple waypoints with me. And so I actually got in a, an Uber taxi with my shotgun and waders on <laughs> and he, the Uber driver did a little hunting when he was a kid. So we chatted about that. He drove me to a piece of public land with a river on it. And I jump shot ducks uh, basically awesome. once I got out of the Uber, uh, but yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with you, you know, as as people who have hunted and have a couple of years under their belt hunting, we need to take more of that mentor role Yes, uh, because I think when you look in the actual, at least the California handbook, uh, you look at those five stages of, of hunting career and the mentor is uh, a 75 year old white haired male kind of leaning over to, you know, his grandson or one of his grandson's friends. Mm-hmm. And they think we need to start bucking that we'll say stereotype where I've mentored people 15, 20 years older than me, uh, that were just passionate, wanting to get into hunting. And I was more than willing to take them out. 
And I had to be, I was maybe too humble in, in my terms as, as far as experience hunting, because when I did take the, these various people out, you know, they don't understand what the word glassy means. Right. And so showing them, you know, okay, this is the, you want to get up somewhat high. These are the spots you're looking into, you know, people are going out there with not even that knowledge, mm-hmm. you know? And so any type of knowledge that you can pass on to, to help them be more successful is, is mentorship. Yeah. You don't have to hold their hand into the woods the whole time. You can sit at the, the local watering hole and tell them how you hunt. And I would count that as mentorship. Right. Yeah, you don't have important. to be standing over their, their shoulder when they pull the trigger. Any information that you can provide is, is helpful for them. And I feel when I do a, a pint night, a BHA sponsored pint night in LA, a lot of our attendees are those people looking to find that mentor. Mm-hmm. And I've heard the story hundreds of times from people saying that they grew up in the Midwest or back East on the coast and they hunted, but they moved out to California for work and they just completely rode off ever hunting or fishing. Right. Don't even and then know. after a couple, right. And after a couple of years, they, they realized that hunting is a, a viable option in California, but they have nowhere to start. Mm-hmm. And I, I give advice all the time about, you know, meet this person or talk to this person or come to more BHA events where we're happy to, to do educational seminars. And that's something that we're looking into this year. We, we had talked at the, the last bite night about doing more archery shoots mm-hmm. and doing like a wild game cooking class or a how to backpacking class and to, to get down kind of a, a tertiary rabbit hole that we're already on. Um, you know, I feel BHA as far as backcountry hunters and anglers, get pegged as, oh, well, you only are interested in the backcountry. Uh, I think the backcountry is whatever you want it to be, um, you know, and, you know, going and taking that Uber to that public land area, that's public land, you know, as far as what I'm allowed and not allowed to do is the same if I was 10 miles into some uh, national forest. Uh, but this was just kind of off the road. Yeah. Try try that Uber deal here, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was a reason I saved it for Montana. So let's say that. <laughs> I, I think I'm going to have to try that just to see how it goes over. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So um, what are, what are the possible impacts without organizations like BHA? I think you lose that voice for, responsible balance of con- uh, conservation. Uh, our public lands were created for multiple use. They weren't created just for hunting. They weren't created just for mineral extraction or, or lumber. Uh, they weren't created just for backpackers. Everyone has a place in on public lands. And without BHA, I feel that we lose that hunting voice that represents our public lands. Uh, you know, I know last year with the, the bear's ears, uh, situation, Patagonia was very loud in their voice, but they were representing the, we'll say the, the backpacking crowd, you know, I think without organizations like BHA, you lose that hunting voice. And maybe you can agree on, on this, as far as California goes, I feel that maybe we are starting to lose that hunting voice, especially within 
the, the state. And you see the effects of it all the time. I don't know. There's a bill to, to ban trapping that's on the floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you have the, the mountain lion ban. You have the bobcat trapping ban already. And we, we need that voice for uh, public lands and, and wildlife. And BHA's niche, I feel, is having the reputation of not being on one extreme or the other. You know, we, we like this, this middle ground. And, you know, if, if a Democrat uh, does something good or bad, we're going to call them out on it. And if a Republican does something good or bad, we're going to call them out on it. We're, uh, we're equal opportunity uh, praisers and, you know, calling people out. And, and, and we've showed that, I feel. And so without BHA... You know, I, I think we lose a lot of that voice and, and that voice is probably more important now than, than ever. Than ever, yes, sir. And that middle ground is pretty important. I mean, to be able to bring, you know, if we're, we're just talking about Patagonia there, but be able to bring um, or stand that middle ground and bring the backpackers and the kayakers and the fly fishermen um, all on the same stance. And, and we all understand. And, and I think we need to do it as hunters and understand that, Hey, we all stand to lose a ton if we don't do this. And I, th- I think that message is getting out there a bit more. Yeah. And uh, with this political landscape, I feel you have more, more people migrating towards those two extreme sides. Mm-hmm. But to my knowledge, nothing's ever gotten done with one side yelling at the other side that they're the right and the other side's wrong. Uh, most of the stuff that I've seen move forward has involved some sort of discussion and we'll say compromise. But, you know, I, I feel compromising is necessary to, to move the needle forward. And we don't want to compromise as hunters. That's what's crazy to me. I mean, we're very open in hearing the other side's argument and just disagreeing with it. But we're very close-minded as a group. Um, you know, hunting is the only thing that matters. And I'm, I'm generalizing or, or broad-stroking that. But that's a lot of what I see. We don't want to hear the other argument. We're not so opposed to fishing. But when you start looking at, you know, other activities, we're less likely to get behind that for whatever reason. Yeah. And being in the hunting and fishing conservation world for as long as I have, which isn't, you know, relatively speaking, isn't too long. But I've I've talked to enough anti-hunters in California to feel that uh, I'm experienced. but when I mentioned Pittman Robertson or when I mentioned the North American model for, for wildlife, uh, when I mentioned that, you know, what depredation permits are when you aren't legal, you allowed to, to hunt something, you know, their guard drops pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times the, the first words out of their mouth are, Oh, I didn't know that. Well, that makes sense. But you know, more times than not, it goes into, well, I'm against trophy hunting. And then that conversation turns into, okay, well, what's trophy hunting? Because there's different versions of that also. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so all the, the true anti-hunters that I've talked to, if you provide them with information and on what the core of hunting does provide for conservation, they're, you know, we'll, we'll say they're tolerant of hunting after that conversation. They're not going to, you know, run to, to big five or, turners to buy a, a shotgun right. but the next conversation they have maybe at a, a cocktail party or, or with their friends they're going to say well i talked to a hunter he was very civil 
and he gave me a lot of information, but, you know, yelling at the top of your lungs about how, you know, hunting should be allowed and really entrenching yourself. I don't think that provides good optics for, for the hunting community in those regards. Mm -hmm. And that goes back to the cop-out arguments because, you know, a lot of us get tired of having to argue it. Um, because we don't see it, you know, from their side of things. Um, but that goes back to having the information and being able to hold that, that educated argument and not just say it's meat in the freezer or this is what I choose to do, you know, piss off. And I think yeah. that's where we let ourselves down more times than not. Yep. And I you know if you were to ask me why I hunt, um, I'll, I'll tell you, it's a hundred percent, uh, meat in the freezer, but it's also, you know, a big portion of it is making sure I'm in shape and healthy because I, you know, for me personally, my passion is, is backpack hunting and I can't sit on the couch eating Doritos for nine months out of the year and then throw a 60 pound backpack on and expect to hike in five or six miles and carry out 200 pounds of, of elk meat, you know, <laughs> without hurting myself. Right. And so I, I use, hunting as an excuse to exercise all year round. And so it's not just meat in the freezer. It's, it's exercising and, and everything like that. But yeah, you're, you're not going to convince anyone that hunting is a cheaper way to buy organic meat. No. I think we all kind of deep, deep down know that that's, that's not true. That we don't but, need, we don't need to deep down know that. I mean, you look at the, the amount of money yeah. we spent on gear and, yeah. and trips, you know, upstate here, out of state. I mean, yeah, we know that that argument is, uh, is false. <laughs> yeah, no, but, uh, you know, I, I challenge every, anyone to, to go out and harvest their own meat and have it not be the best tasting meat they've ever had in their life. Mm -hmm. Just from that, nostalgia and hard work knowing what you put into exactly. it. Exactly. That's exactly what I was about to comment on, man. The value in knowing where it came from and the effort that you put into it and what you learned along the way, not just about nature, but about yourself. You start talking to people and get passionate about why you love the experience. Uh, I think it comes through way more than, you know, the cop out arguments, man. Yeah. And that's why I'm super excited to see as far as hunting media goes, we're, we're turning in that direction. Uh, you know, we have big supporters in, in Randy Newberg and, and Steven Ranella. Mm -hmm. If you watch those shows, you know, if they are successful, they pull the trigger halfway through the show, the, the show. And the other half of the show is them packing out meat or them cooking it over a fire where when I grew up watching ESPN two, and I think it was all like TNN, you know, those hunting shows ended 30 seconds after the guy pulled the trigger right? and it was a, a photo op and then it was on to the next show. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think our new hunters are, are appreciative of, you know, shows like Renella's or, or Newberg's and showing, you know, why they hunt, you know, they're, they're hunting for their experience. If they're not successful, well, at least you have a, a better story than, yeah, I sat home and watched TV all day. Um, you know, I, I'd rather listen to a bad hunting story than a, someone talk about putting around their house on Saturday afternoon. Mm -hmm. And it's important to show that, that full experience. I mean, that when I started hunting, it was, it was exactly what you just mentioned, right? Watching, you know, I'm bone collector or something. And, uh, yeah, you lay it down. Then, you know, I run to the archery shop, man, I'm getting into this. And I had this expectation that it was going to be that easy. 
Yeah. And I've never to this day had it be that easy. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. And, you know, you really look at those shows and you're like, oh, it rained for, you know, five days. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm thinking about like a, a Newberg episode I just recently watched and he had, a, he had a flat tire and had to go back into town and things like that. Well, you know, when you're out there doing that and that stuff is happening to you, it's like, well, at least I know I'm not the only one out here that suffered through something like this. Right. You know, I, I didn't stay in a lodge and then get dropped off by an ATV to my tree stand and click the, the feeder button on my remote. And then all the deer came in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what, uh, I'm, I'm kind of transitioning. I feel in my hunting career more towards, I just want a cool story to tell than how big an animal I shot. Right. Uh, I know, you know, for me personally, my first California deer, I had cell phone service at the top of this, uh, mountain and I was looking through my spotting scope at this buck and then looking at on my phone to see what the regulations were and what the state defined as a, a forkhorn because my first buck was a, f- a fork on one side and a spike on the other <laughs> and as soon as I read that it needs to be a fork on either or I pulled the trigger Heck yeah. um, and, and it's it's uh you know one of the animals I'm most proud of, of going after because it was a hard hunt. Um, I, you know, and I'm a, I'm a gear junkie just like everyone else. And when it came in terms of buying a spotting scope, the biggest thing you read online is, Oh, well, you really don't need a spotting scope unless you want to determine if a buck's a 150 inch or 155 inch deer. Well, I was buying a spotting scope to see if he had a four corner or not, basically at 300 yards. Uh, and so I am definitely, uh, if it's legal, chances are I'm, I'm shooting it. I'm right there with you, man. I'll, I'll get stuck on one deer here and there, but you know, chasing for so long. I, if I can't get, make the connection, I'm moving on. I'm getting to yep. where, uh, I know that I'm going to lay something down or if an opportunity presents itself in chasing that deer and it's, you know, considerably smaller, I do not discriminate. I do not discriminate at all. So what would you, uh, this is kind of a, a rabbit hole, if you will. Social media, how do you, with all that we just said, how do you think that that plays an effect on us as hunters? I mean, there's some influence, you know, you see the big racks, you see the grip and grins. How do you think that's, that's influencing us? I think we can use social media as a platform to educate the non hunting public, what hunting is all about. Obviously everyone's going to have a different opinion of that. Uh, but you know, I know for instance, Sitka started their, uh, I think they called it the diverge uh-huh. uh, photo contest where they sent out a request and they offered prizes to, you know, just your, your real, hunting photos and not just, you know, the staged grip and grin photos. And some of those photos are incredible, you know, yeah, whether man. it's a, a, a cutout of a, a punch tag on, you know, the animal or a, a bloody knife or bloody hands. So I, those photos, I feel for me, ex- tell a lot better story than 
a person framed between giant antlers smiling from ear to ear. Standing 10 feet back. <laughs> exactly. Because, you know, I may have not stood 10 feet back, but I absolutely took a lot of grip and grins, whether it was turkey hunting, you know, spraying the fan out or grabbing the, a deer by the antlers, because that's what I grew up watching. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what the shows were telling me to do for the most part. But that doesn't tell the story of how much I prepared for that hunt. That doesn't tell the story of how excited I am to eat back straps that night. Uh, that doesn't provide the, the amount of narrative that I could tell just on that one particular animal mm-hmm. and, and what went into it. And so with social media, you know, within the last couple of years, I, I stopped posting those grip and grins. I, I post every animal I, I shoot, but it's, you know, a, a lot more in context. And I feel that's the biggest complaint I hear from non-hunters is, oh, well, you just shot that thing to shoot it. It's like, no, um, I, I shot it to eat it. But, you know, those, those, a lot of those pictures aren't getting posted on Instagram. And so when I do harvest an animal, I, I take it in the field photo. But then two days later, I show my dinner plate also mm-hmm. and, and provide that story. Uh, and, and that's the context I think is missing in a lot of social media is, you know, these people see the, the dead animal and then that's it. They don't know what you're doing with it. Uh, and I think that's where people start creating their, their own imagination in their head, you know, of, of why you're out there doing what you're doing. Right. Yeah. Cause a lot of people don't, if you're a non hunter, you don't realize that the amount of work and effort that goes into it. So when you see, that that deer and I me personally I'm not going to post anything that's that's blood and guts man I'm not going to show an animal you know with its tongue out or blood all over its shoulder from the arrow or from the from the bullet I'm not I'm definitely not going to show anything that's you know butchered that presents that non-hunter or anti-hunter with ammunition oh look how horrible this is I mean it's just you're already up against it 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 in my opinion, we need to present it in a light, like you said, that shows the whole story that can help them understand that it wasn't just, you know, jumping out the truck and, oh, there he is, and I'm shooting him and walking away. Right. And uh, I think there is, even from with the, the hunting community, I think there's a demand to see photos that tell more of a story mm-hmm. than just successful uh we'll say trophy shots. And that's why we have, you know, over, I think it's 150,000 followers on Facebook and why we have over a hundred thousand people on our Instagram, even though we only have 30,000 members, uh, we have hundred thousand followers because that's just something they like to see pop up in their newsfeed of, you know, an organization that is hunting focused and is a hundred percent a hunting and fishing organization, but also has the, I don't know, I guess we'll call it common courtesy, not to force it down people's throat that may not be out there looking for those type of photos. Oh, and some of those people do look for it, unfortunately. So you, mm. you said 150,000 on Facebook, 100,000 on Instagram, but membership wise, we're sitting just over 30,000. 
why the yeah. imbalance? Uh, I think with just today's landscape, we're always getting bombarded with organizations or people asking us to do something or, or to donate to, to a cause. Uh, and I'm just as guilty. I, I almost have a dedicated email for that type of stuff. That way I can just start clicking delete, you know, once or twice a day and, you know, not really look at it. Uh, and so I think people are, are, especially with the, the tools that they are offered now, they want to make sure that when they do give money to an organization, it aligns about as much as it can to what they personally believe in. Uh, and, and no organization is going to agree a hundred percent with every single one of your views, unless I guess you created the, the organization, but I feel people are very hesitant just to start throwing money around without knowing every little detail about, you know, where their money is going. But uh, the, the, I understand that, but that number is still very, if you put it on the scale, I mean, it's night and day, right? One side is hanging way, way low. So, you know, out of 150,000, you got 30,000 members. Um, you look at the numbers of, of hunting license across the nation at, at BHA is at what, 25 bucks for the bottom tier membership. I don't want to tier it say tier that yeah. I guess that sets it, but it just seems super lopsided to me, man. We, we have to understand what you just said that we're not going to align with everything, but do we not understand the importance of BHA or, or RMEF or wild Turkey? I, I, it's yep. very odd to me. And I, I think uh, there's a lot of truth in, in that. And basically we, uh, BHA is a membership-driven organization. Uh, obviously, when we first started, we had to rely on a lot of outside grants. But now that our membership is growing, we're less and less reliant on those grants and more reliant on membership dollars coming in. And that's going to kind of make us recession-proof, so to speak, because whenever the economy takes a downturn, those type of grants are the first things to, to get dried up. Mm -hmm. And so if we can create more members, that's going to make sure that this organization is going to be around in the future. And I think it's a very uh, necessary organization from all the things that we've been talking about so far today is, you know, we need a voice from the hunting and fish community up there talking about public land, water and, and wildlife. And, uh, <clears throat> With, without that membership, we, we lose that voice. So I know some, some criticisms have come up saying, well, you're only interested in, in getting numbers. Well, the reason that we need those numbers is to make sure that we have that loud enough voice because you can shout as much as you want, but unless you are talking to the, to the right people and at the right table, you're not getting a whole lot of work done. And so the more membership we have, the more credibility we have with the decision makers in Congress. And so one of the first things we always say when we're meeting a new congressman or woman is we're the fastest growing sports organization in the country. Mm -hmm. And that's a hundred percent true. And every single time that perks their ears up and that gets their attention. And we just need to become such a large organization where we can no longer be ignored by some of the people who uh, maybe would not like to 
hear what we have to say. And so once we become big enough there, we're going to be a major player on the, on the landscape. And I feel with our mission, uh, we can do a lot with, with what we have and, and what we continue to, to grow. Mm-hmm. So part of that would be as outdoorsmen is understanding that when we are going to these congressmen and the state legislatures and whatnot, they're looking at organizations uh, that have large numbers uh, because that's constituents that's going to keep them in the office. And I think there's a lack of that type of information um, when you make that statement of you just care about numbers. Right. And and that's, uh, you know, they, every decision maker is, is a busy person. And, you know, I know they, they love to say that they make time for everyone, but they definitely have their priorities too. And so if they know BHA and they know if, if we're passionate about an issue like LWCF last year or whatever comes up in the future, uh, we're, we're not going to go away and we're going to be at their door. And the, the louder our, our knock is at that door, the more willing they're uh, to work with us and uh, maybe back away about it from an issue that they thought they were in the, on the right side of things from a sportsman and, and hunting and fishing community. And, you know, we're, we're not afraid to say, no, um, that's, that's not what uh, you should be doing with, with our public lands. So the importance of boots on the ground participation, right? The buying the membership is only the the first step to be boots on the ground. Um, and when I say boots on the ground, to me, getting your hunting license, paying the excise tax, uh, getting your tags, that's not boots on the ground. The first step in boots on the ground is, you know, choosing what organization in lines with your views but what's the importance of of that? And then even further than just the membership, activities like, you know, restoration, uh, cleanups, et cetera. How important is that stuff that we're, you know, that we stay involved in? Yeah, I think it's very, very much uh, of importance. Uh, And that's what we pride ourselves as far as uh, an organization on is we're not just asking for, you know, your money for a membership and maybe a, a once a year annual banquet banquet where we raffle off a couple shotguns and, and maybe a hundred or two. Uh, that's not what we do. Uh, when you sign up for a membership, you're going to given, you're going to be given opportunities to participate in public land cleanups, uh, archery shoots, you know, wild cooking game classes, working with the state on advanced hunter ed clinics, showing people how to backpack. And so if you're, if you're someone who has heard about BHA and knows a little bit about hunting and maybe interested in becoming a mentorship, we provide events for you. You don't have to feel like you're going out by yourself to look for hunters. We, we have the membership base that are very eager to get into the the hunting world are just looking for, for people. Uh, And so whether you're a a new hunter coming from San Francisco or LA or San Diego, uh, looking to get involved or uh, someone who's been hunting in California for for 20 or 30 years and feel that uh, maybe the organizations that you're currently involved with could be doing more. uh, Like I said, we're, we're the new kid on the block and this is really our second year. And in my opinion, no, I, no idea is a bad idea. 
as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I'd love to hear what people have to, to say, you know, as far as ideas about what BHA can do in California and, you know, throughout other States, because we're, we're willing to do that. Um, but that's the biggest thing that separates our membership from say uh, a different hunting organization membership. Uh, when, when you sign up for BHA, you can be as busy as you want to be. Uh, you know, you absolutely can just kind of give your, your $25 or whatever membership you would like. Uh, we do, we do offer life memberships that come with some pretty sweet prizes like Kimber mountain ascent uh, rifle, uh, Jackson kayaks, uh, seek outside tents, but, uh, yeah, you can, you can give your money that way and get the magazine, uh, four times a year, or you can jump in with both feet and you know, I'll give you my, my personal phone number. And, uh, people definitely are, are taking advantage of, of coming with coming to me with ideas. And I feel we're, we're running with them. Uh, I know for, for example, last, last year, someone came up and said, Hey, I'd love to do a, a sporting range shoot fundraiser. And we had about 70 people, I think signed up. We had Chipotle donate a whole bunch of food. Uh, and unfortunately I was busy and I couldn't go down to that event, but that was a hundred percent someone else's idea. I, I didn't really do any of the planning involved with that. Mm-hmm. That was just a, I remember saying, this is what I would like to do. And I gave them all the, the necessary tools to do it. And uh, it went great. Yeah, and that's one of the things that you and I talked about at the last pint night. And we're working on is trying to get together and doing a uh, 3D archery shoot down here. One, there's very few in SoCal, but man, to get the word spread to the guys that, you know, aren't active is a big deal for me. So I'm looking forward to really getting that, that up and running. I'm working on it, but unfortunately has been met with some resistance on some of the avenues that I've, that I've taken. So hopefully we'll yep. get to kick that off as well. Yeah. I know personally, when I joined, uh, it was, it was pure, you know, we'll say it was peer pressure, but it wasn't a whole lot of pressure involved. Uh, a friend of mine came up and said, Hey, this new organization is kind of dedicated to science-based conservation. They're hunter and hunting and fishing base. And that was really all I needed to, to hear, uh, before I signed up, because before that time, when we first started talking, I said that I had a, a wildlife science bachelor's degree. And so I had to read a lot of uh, Theodore Roosevelt stuff, a lot of Aldo Leopold stuff, but I wasn't hearing those names mentioned within the hunting community. It was more of the wildlife conservation community, which is starting to split from the hunting community. Uh, but as soon as I found BHA as an organization that could talk about, you know, working up your, your 280 Ackley rifle load in the same breath, talk about Eldo Leopold's Sand County Almanac. I, w- I was hooked on, on this organization. That's one of the things that I've heard, right? When I'm talking to folks about it, they, they say, well, you know, conservation organizations are like, you know, they have their small businesses in, in whatever state they're in or whatever city they're in. And they're concerned with the appropriation of the funds or that, you know, $25 membership or whatever it is. How do I know where my money's going? You know, is it actually going into that? How much of that membership is going into 
the conservation fight versus how much of that membership is going to actually fund BHA careers, if you will. Yeah. And so, uh, much of our funding is dependent year to year. Like I, when I, when I signed my, my BHA contract, it was for one year. Uh, I didn't sign a, a 25 year guaranteed job with this organization. And uh, <clears throat> I think most people when they join BHA as a staff person are doing just that. It's, it's a, it's a gamble because when you sign up for a new job that is really only guaranteed for a year, that's, that's a little nerve wracking. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I think that's what attracts our staff and, you know, be as motivated as they are. Uh, because if you're willing to leave your job that might have some, some security to it, to join an organization like BHA where they're only really guaranteeing you a, a year job for the initial contract, like you got to be pretty dedicated to the mission of BHA in order to take that leap. And everyone on our staff is 100% in line with that. That says a lot because I had no idea until you said that 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 was the case. I mean, that that's a huge deal. Yep. I know I, I would be nervous putting my livelihood on the line. <laughs> you know what I mean? That says that, that the folks there are, are passionate about what they're doing and willing to risk their livelihood for what they're doing. That's a big, big deal, man. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of just to run over some numbers so listeners can have a, just a rough idea. Uh, most nonprofits run about a 7% admin fee. And, you know, that's paying for uh, you know, the secretary and the director of operations and things like that, where we're, we're hovering around more 3%. And so no one, no one's getting rich at BHA. I can guarantee you that. Right. Uh, but what that does create is, you know, that just group of super passionate outdoorsmen and women that, you know, will do what needs to take to, to voice the, the concerns from hunting and fishing mm-hmm. and make sure that public lands stay open. Uh, and uh, when we first started, I, I think I mentioned this a little before, but you know, we were, we were more or less grant funded as an organization from year to year. And it was, we had to do some hustling to, to make sure that money kept coming in every year. But if we can get a, a larger membership base, we won't have to focus so much on making sure we have money to, to do what we need to do year to year. And we can focus on, you know, what's important, which is becoming the, the sportsman's voice for, for wild public lands, water and wildlife. So, Three percent is is super low. So if you're looking at a, a twenty five dollar membership, my math isn't that great. But you're talking maybe seventy five percent at three or seventy five cents at three percent that comes out of that membership. So if you look at the numbers in California at at sixteen hundred folks, I mean that's pennies, man. So how? Yeah, no, it is. How is that money? So um, I'm gonna pull up my calculator because, like I said, so if we say seventy five cents, uh, what did you say? Sixteen hundred on the membership, something like twelve hundred dollars that yeah. goes into admin for the state. 
Yep. Yeesh. I mean, that's nothing. I mean, and, and no. overall, so we go 25 at 1600 You're talking only $40,000 or so. Um, so how is that? Man, that's crazy. Dude, yeah. I hope you're not making $1,200 for working here in California. <laughs> no, yeah, no, I'm, I'm making, making a little more than that. But, uh, but going back, to kind of maybe give you some more info as far as BHA from, from uh, an HQ level. Uh, we had our first real staff meeting in December. Mm-hmm. And we had 31 people, I believe, in attendance for our staff meeting. And the first question our CEO Lantani asked was raise your hand if you haven't worked here for a year yet. And half of us had to raise our hand. And so I, and that was kind of the first thing that was eye opening to me when I joined as a, as a full-time staff person, you know, I had heard so much about BHA, you know, before and even after I was a member. And I thought this was going to be some hundred person staff doing all of this, mm-hmm. but it, it was really just a 15 full-time staff until, till 2018. And, you know, we we're only at 30 now. So if you look at what 30 people can do at a, a international level, you know, I can only dream of what a hundred staff people at BHA would, would be able to accomplish. That's insane numbers. Again, the, the numbers are crazy. So if you, I mean, just for 50 States at 30 people, you know, you're talking just over, you know, uh, two states per person. How, how do you guys split that up? Cause that's, I know for you, you're California, Nevada, correct? Yep. And so, uh, I'm California, Nevada. We have a, a dedicated Montana, dedicated, uh, Ohio or sorry, Idaho, but every other state has, every coordinator has three to four states that they're in charge of. And, and Ty Stubblefield is our, uh, new chapter coordinator. And so he, if a a new chapter pops up, he oversees them until we can find a coordinator to assign to that state. And so I think he has like nine or 10 states because so so many uh, states are are winding involved in in BHA. And they're up until last year, we kind of had this black hole in the Midwest, uh, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, but all those states came on last year. And they're just increasing, you know, at just of a rapid rate as, as the rest of the country. And we do have four, uh, chapters in Canada, uh, Alberta, British Columbia, I think, uh, Saskatchewan and I, Yukon is another one that's going to come on this year. Mm-hmm. So it's not just an, uh, America, a United States organization We're we're international, but, uh, running, uh, that large of an organization with, with 30 people, uh, it's a, it's a full-time job. We'll we'll say that it's not a Monday through Friday, nine to five. It's a 364 day (laughs) job. Right. I mean, that's, that's a workload, man. That is a workload. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I lost track there. My, I'm, I'm flipping out on these numbers because I didn't expect them to be that low. Are you guys, so how do we, how does BHA tie into, or how is BHA working with the state fish and game wildlife? Are the states being pretty welcoming and, and listening to, uh, BHA and are you guys actively involved with, with the different states fish and game? 
Yes, both on the the uh, every chapter has a very good working relationship with that state's uh, fish and wildlife. Uh, I can only obviously talk about California, Nevada, and I'll, I'll focus more on California. But uh, we are representative on the board of their R three program. So the state did come out with a, a committee dedicated to that uh, recruitment retention reactivation strategy that I mentioned. And we are uh, officially on that. And then most, uh, well, I won't say most, but there are members that are BHA members that are also sitting on that board in a different capacity. Oh, wow. And so um, we are, uh, we're fully represented there. And then something that I think is just a awesome idea that the state is doing is Everyone takes their hunter ed class, but for the most part, it's focused on gun safety and that's basically it. You know, it's the state really just wants to, to make sure that you're just not going to go out there shooting every movement in the bush. Right. But that's not enough to get started in hunting personally, I feel. And so the state has what they call the advanced hunter ed class, which you can sign up and, uh, State game warden, hunter instructor will teach a class specifically dedicated to deer hunting, to pig hunting, to waterfowl, uh, to wild game cooking. And that's something that we're going to work with them, I feel, this year and do more of a, like a backcountry theme uh, and, and show people that it, you know, with you know, very minimal equipment, you can safely camp overnight mm-hmm. and or maybe two days because your, your first overnight hunting camping trip should not be a seven day solo trip in the Trinity Alps. Um, you know, it, it should be just a, a quick overnight in your local hunting area, just to get a feel of what it really is like, because I know personally, that's the biggest mental uh, challenge I've ever faced is doing a, a five day hunt in a different state by myself and after day two or three, you, uh, you feel like you're the only one out there. Yeah. Um, you're talking to yourself. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I've held plenty of conversations, man. Answers questions <laughs> the whole nine. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, we're working with the state in those regards to, you know, to get our new hunters more, more confident and to, to kind of push themselves. Mm-hmm. And then I know in the, the Southern California, LA area, we help them do a, a trout survey in, I forget what river, but it's one of the, the rivers that does still have native trout in the, the LA foothills and, and mountains. And so, you know, we're kind of across the board. We're, we're sitting on committees. We're helping them recruit new hunters and we're helping them with their, their science to make informed decisions for, for our regulations. Mm, that's awesome. So, sitting on that board and I mentioned it earlier and you said you'll take suggestions, but can we push them to get the conservation message into that first hunter safety course outside of just the safety aspects of it? Um, not saying that, that it's any less important, um, or more important, but I think, you know, like I said earlier, that gap in time, I feel like needs to be needs to be shortened up. Is there any way to get that message across to them? Do they see value in, in, you know, preaching or talking conservation early on? Yeah, I, I think that's uh, a very much a, a possibility. 
you know, and it's been a while since I actually taught a class, but I know when I actually took the Hunter Ed instructor test, I can't remember anything off the top of my head that made me research Pittman Robertson or, or had me, uh, you know, make sure I knew all about it. Mm-hmm. And so maybe even if it you know comes down to throwing one or two questions on your, your average Hunter Ed test about Pittman Robertson, uh, you know, I think that would just be a, an improvement, but I would like to see, you know, more literature dedicated within the booklet that you all get uh, when you do take the test about conservation. And that's, those are the exact conversations that we're having already with the, the R3 program to, to get that, to get that changed and to move that needle. So, no, that's a, that's a great suggestion. And uh, to my knowledge, that's exactly the, the type of conversations we're having. Yeah, because that I mean, that's a big deal when we start talking, you know, somebody trying to argue the point. If if you have that that information up front, then you're less likely to grab a hold of the, you know, again, the cop out arguments and be able to speak educated or, you know, close to with with some solid facts and and uh, really push a different narrative outside of, you know, meat in the freezer. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, just playing devil's advocate, uh, which I kind of look, even when I'm talking to myself, I always love to play kind of the, the devil's advocate mm-hmm. to myself. But every time I hear someone say, oh, well, we're controlling the, the wildlife population. It's like, okay, well, then does that mean you're only for whitetail hunting and against mule deer hunting? Because science is showing that the mule deer population is not doing that well. Um, or are you against bighorn sheep hunting? Because that population could probably uh, use, use a break. And so, you know, I, I, that's the, that's the personal pet peeve. I don't like about that. Oh, we're controlling the wildlife population mm-hmm. because that's not what hunting is hundred percent designed to do within the North American model. Right. It's designed for conservation. And I feel if you are going to have a discussion with a non-hunting person. It's going to go over a lot better coming from that conservation side than say you're shooting animals to protect them from themselves, so to speak. Um, I, I think that conservation uh, rhetoric goes a lot, lot farther. I mean, that goes, that can go as, as easy as what is the actual definition of conservation. And I don't think that most folks can answer that. I, you know what I mean? When they start mm-hmm. talking meat in the freezer and things like that, you, what is conservation? And I think not having that answer or that information is, is part of that weak argument or the cop-out argument again. If you ask me 10 years ago, what is conservation? I couldn't tell you. I, I might mm-hmm. not have been able to tell you I might not be able to tell you today what it really is. You know, I have my view of it, but yeah, it seems like that would be the, the first step in the line to really, you know, strengthen all that is just, you know, the basic information. And that's why BHA takes a lot of their guidance from Theodore Roosevelt, because back then the conversation was, do we want conservation or do, do we want preservation? And those are very different terms. Uh, and there was talks back in the day of just more or less fencing a, a national forest and guarding it with the army and allowing no one in. Wow. And luckily, uh, Roosevelt decided that's not 
how we're going to move forward and we're going to have conservation. We're going to use our resources and we're going to make sure that we don't use all of our resources. And particularly from BHA standpoint, those resources were game animals and, and fish. Uh, and so when I say that, you know, you need to have some sort of compromise to move really anything forward. I think conservation could also be the definition for compromise. You know, you're taking some out, but you're also leaving some there. Uh, and so I think that's the role that BHA really is designed to do is making sure that we can use what we have now, but making sure that our future generations have those same experiences. Because I know when I was standing over my first elk, I was in disbelief. I, I didn't think what was happening was actually happening. Um, and I didn't think the animal was dead until I actually put my hands on it because I was fully expecting it just to kind of disappear. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was like, this, this just did not happen this fast. Uh, and so I would do anything to make sure somebody else has that same appreciation and, and same excitement. Uh, when they work up, when they walk up on their, their first animal and it doesn't have to be an elk. Uh, it could be a, a morning dove or a, a squirrel or, or anything. Yeah. You really, Oh, elk is don't get me going on that. That's next level in terms of, uh, that excitement and that feeling of what you experience. But yeah, you know, I have, uh, I love going dove hunting. I'm not the greatest wing shooter. Quail hunting is a blast and you have the same level of appreciation in all of them, you know, rabbit hunting, I man, rabbit hunting is one of my favorite activities. I, I love it. it. Gets that blood yeah. going. And I know, uh, you know, I don't even want to know how long ago it was, but I was say 14 when I shot my first deer and I can still, I can still tell you every squirrel I saw that day. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's how well that image is just burned into my memory. Uh, having that. So you said conservation and preservation, right? And you hear a lot of, well, you guys need to leave it alone as hunters. You shouldn't be hunting. And then we, you know, go into the herd management argument and et cetera, et cetera. And people say, well, you know, if you don't touch it, it's just going to stay there. Um, but we've had our hands in the pot, so to speak, for so long that not doing something is worse than our stance. Am I accurate there? I kind of jumbled that up a bit, but we, we have to do something. We have to manage it. We can't just leave it alone. Yeah. And I think the key word in there you just said is, is we have to manage on some way or another. Uh, the, the days of closing off a big piece of, of land and just having mother nature work itself out doesn't exist anymore. Uh, us as humans have completely thrown that opportunity out the window for, for that to happen. Uh, no matter where it is, as far as wildlife, uh, we need management from, from both sides. We need management because some areas are overrun with overpopulation and you need management because some areas are uh, in dire need of uh, putting more land animals on the landscape. Mm -hmm. For instance, I just did a, a meeting with uh, a, a congressman staffer and talking about sheep hunting. And you look at the, the Mojave desert and you have all these islands of, of mountain ranges and each mountain range has its 
particular population of bighorn sheep. Mm-hmm. And they really don't move off that mountain because then they have to cross the, the desert in the, the, the flat ground. And so we need to make sure that all that genetic diversity is still viable because then you run into issues with disease and uh, large-scale die-offs. And one of those management tools is hunting. And it's also uh, using water sources like guzzlers, which is also primarily 100% volunteer-based, which is something that we're going to be working with the the Wild Sheep Foundation and helping them install new guzzlers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so you need, I feel you need management on every piece of landscape out there. And management from a cost perspective standpoint involves hunting because you either can have people willing to pay money to go do it, or you can have the state tax you so they can pay to go do it. But regardless, it's going to get done. So that's why I think hunting plays such a crucial role in that North American model is because we have people willing to, to foot the bill for it. You know, it doesn't have to come from taxpayers. And, and that's what's what's vital for conservation in, in North America. So the guzzlers tangent again. So I don't, I think that was you I was talking to and we were talking about uh, Mojave and they wanted to pull the guzzlers out of the park area itself. I, that I don't understand. How does that affect that wildlife? So if we're, you know, looking to keep them, you know, to those mountain ranges, you know, and then the quail and everything thrive on those guzzlers. Some of those have been there for probably 20 or 30 years. Give me some background on that. Yep. And, and so this is a perfect example of some of the, the policy work that BHA has done just, just last year. So the Mojave National Preserve came out with their water management plan and their preferred alternative was to pull or let go to waste of the guzzlers in the wilderness area. And the plan was to let those more or less crumble and become useless and then build new guzzlers outside of the wilderness designation areas. But the issue with that is kind of first, those guzzlers were there before it was even designated wilderness. A lot of those guzzlers were there uh, in the fifties, which, you know, back then it was just, uh, regular old, I think it was BLM land actually back in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the national park took control of it, designated some wilderness areas. And now the, the park's wanting to remove those guzzlers. But since those guzzlers have been there for, we'll say 60, 70 years, every one of those sheep and mule deer and, and the other big game species on the landscape and that, and that area have relied for generations on those locations and the guzzlers are actually used as a management tool to facilitate sheep to move between uh, feeding grounds. And so when you remove those, they have no reason to go to that area, which potentially could be meeting new sheep in order to provide a better genetic diversity for, for breeding. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and what we commented on was in the alternative, it states that uh, from the, I'm speaking as the national park, you know, they said that we're going to move these guzzlers and we'll probably see a decline in population in wildlife, but we assume that it's going to rebound within short, short number of years. 
Well, when, when you're talking about a low density mule deer population, that's super fragile. And you're talking about bighorn sheep. I don't think you are allowed the luxury of assuming anything on a population level. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's potentially going to decrease that population, then we shouldn't be doing it. And in a nutshell, that's more or less what we provided comments on with the, the water management plan is it's already volunteer funded. So it's not like the, the national park has to use staff to, to maintain those. Uh, there's more than enough volunteer groups out there that are willing to do that for them. And it was really a, I would say that's the major point of contention with sportsman's groups and that water management plan is the removal and new location of a lot of those water sources. But yeah, that I'm, I'm confused because <laughs> you, you, you know, you talk, you start talking about, you know, management of, of that, that land that seems like that's a heck of an assumption to make that oh we'll see a, a rebound in that population in a short period of time well what's a short period of time and and you're assuming that you're going to see a rebound to herd numbers that are already diminished and and very very small yeah and some of these guzzlers were going to be moved two kilometers away so it wasn't like it was going to be moved a couple hundred yards down the road or, or down the canyon. It was going to be in the, the next canyon or the, the next canyon over from that canyon. Uh, and <laughs> you, then you have the issue with human disturbances. You know, sheep aren't going to be sitting there with uh, kind of drinking glasses in their hand ready for the guzzler to be completed. Um, there's there's going to be some time where they're going to have to find that new guzzler and and that time is going to be a very uh precious time uh for them to find water because if you've ever been out in the mojave desert there's there's no water not an oasis yeah <laughs> exactly there's no water dang yeah that's crazy man wow yeah hearing numbers and hearing stuff like that. I mean, from my seat, I, it just floors me. Uh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the motive behind something, what, what is their motive that they, that they say what the motive is or why they were looking to do that. That just doesn't make sense to me. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with it being a wilderness designation. And so the, the, the belief is if it's wilderness, you can have no human activity in there. Uh, as far as a man-made structure, structure mm-hmm. that's why there's no you know, buildings in wilderness areas that's why we don't have roads in wilderness areas and uh, the thinking was well since this is a wilderness area there shouldn't be any man-made structures well th- the issue from our perspective was okay well if it was there before the wilderness designation and these animals rely on it and it's already an effective management tool that you're using you shouldn't take them out right but that, goes- that was kind of the thinking behind it was, okay, well, it's wilderness now. Let's go through and sweep everything man-made off that, that area. Well, that's, that goes right back to that point of we've had our hand in the pot so long that we can't go back to what it was. There's just no way to do that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But uh, no, that's, uh, <clears throat> that's exactly the, the type of stuff that BHA is working on and, and making sure that sportsmen have a voice in it. Uh, in, in California. Yeah, that's crazy. I, I, you know, we support BHA, man, and I'm glad to, 
especially with, with fights like that. Um, when we, we do a lot of our quail hunting out that way and, uh, we don't see them all the time, but man, when you see one of those big horns, one of those desert rams, it's just a beautiful sight. And to think that that already small population could be impacted even further, man, that's a big deal. Yeah. I think that's probably one of the best kept secrets in Southern California was the the quality of quail hunting in Mojave. Mm. Uh, I think I know when I first started uh, in California, I actually helped out with the youth quail hunt out there mm-hmm. that the national park service puts on and, and, and sponsors it, which is, I think is great for a national park service to sponsor our youth quail hunt. Mm-hmm. Uh, but some of the quail hunting out there is just tremendous. Oh man, it's, it is off the hook, <laughs> <laughs> and, but you know, and then not just the mule deer and, and the bighorn, but the quail populations are going to be hugely impacted by the lack of water, the lack of those guzzlers there as well. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, and so you have the big game guzzlers, but even more so we have a lot of the small game guzzlers for specifically for quail uh, and, and rabbits and, and jackrabbits, things like that. But, uh, you know, the, the desert is a very precarious thing and one or two months without rain where typically it needs rain. It, it does have a, a visual effect on the landscape. So BHA, uh, 2018, man, uh, share some of the milestones outside of, you know, hitting that 30 K membership. Uh, yeah. And so, uh, talking about just bringing awareness to, to LWCF, uh, I think a lot of people started 2018, not knowing what it is. And then with our, our voice and our repetition of the importance of reauthorizing it, I think they are LWCF aficionados. And I know for, for a fact that there was people that were maybe intimidated or, or never called their congressman or woman or or decision maker. And, you know, we gave them the tools in order to create that dialogue. And so we had a lot of first time callers uh, that were BHA members talking to their, their lawmakers and and providing them with, with comments on, on how they should vote on, on this thing or or that thing. And so we really activated our our base tremendously in, in that regard. And then, uh, you know, obviously just making our voice heard on, in the, in the political arena. I know earlier last year you had Jason Chavitz kind of introduce that bill in Wyoming talking about how he was going to transfer all the, the public land in Utah and BHA put enough pressure on him where he uh, not only pulled that bill, but he made sure to go out and put a hunting vest on and take a puppy and, and take a picture with that. And then announced that he was going to pull a bill because he didn't want to do that to sportsmen. Mm-hmm. And so I feel BHA played a very important role in informing him that, you know, transferring public lands is not something that sportsmen or women want to do. And I think before we, we told him that, I think he, uh, didn't realize that that's definitely a, a, an issue that we're passionate about. And in, in California specifically, uh, we also increased our membership by 40%. But again, I think in 2016, 17, 
you know, we were averaging, we'll say less than three or four events a year. Uh, and we did 26, 27 this year, uh, or, or in 2018. And our, our chapter leaders, our, our board members in California right now are talking about what they want to do for 2019. And I can tell you that it's not just going to be a bunch of pint nights. Uh, you know, some, some talks have been the archery shoot that we, we've had some discussions about, but I, w- I would love to see some film tours that are BHA led and hosted oh, wow. about, uh, just your, your average person on public land and their successes or, or failures and, you know, run a, run a theater out, play the movie, have some, some food and drinks and some meat, meet like-minded individuals, you know, that's something that I would love to see in California as far as a BHA presence. So that's something we're talking about. And then again, as far as the policy stuff, uh, Castle Mountains National Monument is something that's very high on, on my list. And I don't know if you know the background on that, but I can kind of give your listeners a quick overview. Uh, it's right next to the Mojave National Preserve, which is National Park. And so you had this chunk of BLM land, and there was talk about protecting it. And uh, before Obama left office, he used the Antiquities Act to turn it into a national park. But instead of keeping it with uh, BLM, the decision was made to turn it over to the National Park National Monument uh, Agency. And so there was kind of a, a small little sentence or two in that transfer that said that National Park Monument land is close to hunting. And I believe it, it wasn't an oversight. I, I don't think anyone was, was trying to kind of screw over the, the hunting and fishing base. I think it was just one of those things that people didn't realize from when it went to, to, to BLM to uh, National Park, uh, National Monument. But um, it happened and effectively closed all the Castle Mountains down to, to hunting. And it's on par with the, the great quail hunting and great mule deer hunting that you see in, in the preserve. Mm-hmm. And so we're working with uh, Representative Cook's office and, and other uh, decision makers to get that uh, transferred from a national uh, monument and absorb that into the national preserve. So you're still keeping all of the protections. You're just allowing hunting mm-hmm. because we can hunt in the preserve already that's controlled by national park, but you can't hunt in the castle mountains, which is a national park monument. So we're just trying to have the preserve absorb that national monument. You keep all the, you know, habitat intact. You have all the the conservation, but as sportsmen, we're allowed to go in there and shoot, you know, quail, uh, deer, chucker, or, you know, whatever upland game and and small game there is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, pie in the sky, I would love to see a, a Castle Mountains bighorn sheep hunt. But currently that's off the table and, until we allow hunting back in, in that area. Mm-hmm. So I would say that's our, our number one priority for, for 2019 as far as policy goes. And then we're also looking into the Smith River up in northern uh, California and maybe some effects the, the mining industry has on, on native salmon. And we're going to try to work with them to, to see how we can resolve that issue. And obviously we always have our ears open for examples like on the American river with private landowners blocking public access and more or less harassing 
uh, people trying to float that fishing and saying that they're trespassing while they're absolutely on, on public land. And so if, if that ever comes to contention where we feel that we can throw our, our comment or, or help mediate that, um, we're looking forward to that. Mm-hmm. And my email is always open for, for members in California to, to email me what's going on. You know, as, as well as me is that California is a, a pretty big state. So to have every little information about public land access or, or hunting and fishing throughout the whole state is, is almost a full-time job in itself. So I rely heavily on, on our membership base to inform me of, of decisions that I don't see uh, when, when I search for them. So just a quick one for me. So if I'm floating down, floating down that river and I'm passing or crossing through private land, my understanding is I actually have to step foot on it. You know, just being on the waterway isn't enough. Um, that doesn't constitute that that uh, private land. Is that accurate or is there? Correct. Yep. Um, but what's happening is the private landowner is seeing that little section of the stream as his extension of his backyard. So he's a, he or she is effectively taking their backyard and drawing that line straight through the river and assuming that they have domain over that. Um, and I, I guess the, the simplest analogy I have is, uh, you know, I, I grew up in a kind of a suburb where uh, people had their front yards and, and some of my neighbors assumed that the sidewalk was also their property. Uh, it was almost the same analogy that uh, that sidewalk is not their property. It's, it's a public access. Same with the river. As long as you're staying below the high water mark, you're, you're free to, to recreate and, and do as you please. However, that is not common knowledge to the, the homeowners and, you know, a lot of areas in California, a lot of areas throughout the nation, because as, as a realtor, you're not going to tell someone that, oh, you have this pristine river going through your backyard. And oh, by the way, anyone can use it. Right. You, you know, that's see. not a selling point for them. Yeah. You'll see 10 boats floating by today. Right. But if that ever does come to a, a political fight, uh, we are, uh, we're, we're ready to, to represent the, the fishing community and, and stand up for them. So 2019 for BHA, plans, goals, um, what are the, the set milestones thus far? Uh, well, I can already say that um, I've already started work on the Castle Mountains. That's where I was last Friday, or I guess yesterday, uh, talking with decision makers on that and, and showing them the landscape that's involved. Uh, goals, I would love to see membership. Uh, like we mentioned earlier, we're about 16, five, something like that, hundred people. So between 1600 and 1700 people, uh, I would love to see that hit 3000. And I think with the events that we have lined up, we can do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of those events are going to be the, the film tours, the archery shoots, uh, and the way I have it kind of structured in my mind right now is yeah, you paid $25 for a ticket. Uh, that includes a year membership. Uh, you get to see a pretty cool movie uh, without the uh, high-end production value. So it's kind of like staying at a friend's house and, and watching different public land movies. 
food and drink and you get to, to meet people that you maybe wouldn't have met driving down the, the, the 405. So uh, I want to create more of a sense of community with, and especially the urban areas, uh, LA, San Diego, San Francisco. I want people who are just getting into hunting to know BHA right off the bat uh, and know that we're there to provide them with all the tools necessary to, to get them out in the woods and, and be an advocate for our, our hunting and fishing heritage. That was, that's definitely the, the main goal to, to have in 2019 within California. And that's but, exciting for, that's exciting for me, man, you know, being, being born and raised in Southern California to have that presence get stronger and stronger is man is very exciting. Mm-hmm. And I, <clears throat> I have to credit a lot of our, our chapter leaders, you know, with being motivated to, to do these events, because obviously I can't go up and down the state planning every, every event. And so I rely heavily on our, our membership base. And if, if you're an active, active member that, you know, even wants to go above and beyond that, there's, there's uh there's room for you within the California chapter of BHA. Uh, the, there's no, uh, caste system, so to speak. If, if you're motivated and want to do something, I'm going to give you all the tools that you need to, to have to, to make it happen. That's awesome. So kind of off topic here, but one of the things that we're doing and I, and I'm really, we're doing it on our own here is we're doing, we, we've partnered up or teamed up with a couple uh, brands and I'm doing a BHA membership giveaway coupled up with them. And it's just a membership that, you know, is out of my pocket. And I'm just trying to spread the BHA word, man, and get those numbers up. Um, it's pretty important. I mean, this is this could be so impactful, especially here in Southern California, when we where we don't have the voice, or you know, guys don't even realize that that we actually have good numbers here. So getting those, you know, getting those guys or women involved in that, man, is a big deal for me. So I'm gonna I'm gonna keep pushing. That's, that's awesome to hear. Uh, you know, thanks, thanks for doing that. Um, and uh, again, uh, going back to, to why our voice needs to be loud and in California, particularly the, the urban areas is when the, the wildlife commissioners meetings happen in these areas, you know, less and less. So the hunting contingent or uh, demographic is being less and less represented. Uh, and it's more of the, uh, I don't want to say anti-hunting, but definitely not pro-hunting. No one's getting up there speaking on behalf of hunters that aren't involved in hunting. And so the, the louder our voice can be and the more members we have, the more members we can have show up to those those meetings that determine whether we have a, a tracking season or a, a bobcat season or a mountain mine season or, or black bear season. You know, and to, to the commissioner's credit, they're not going to know what we're feeling unless we tell them personally mm-hmm. uh, they're 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 busy people they're not gonna make time to reach out to us we need to reach out to them and you know i feel the more members we have the more we can inform them that hey you know this meeting is happening here at this such and time this such a date you know show up and, and voice your concern for for hunting and fishing because i know if we don't uh, our voice is going to get ignored and, and part of that to me goes into 
what what I mean, a paradigm shift, right? Instead of always being on the defensive, we need to have a paradigm shift and a and a change in our thought process um, and get on the offensive and, and really start to voice it ahead of time and strongly and wherever we can. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the more education we have in our arsenal, uh, the, the better our argument can be for for conservation and hunting and fishing. Uh, <clears throat> I know I've been to some commissioners meetings or policy meetings where uh, even outside the hunting and fishing world, like the, a group will show up wearing you know, matching T-shirts saying, you know, anti this or whatever. And I, I, I've talked to some commissioners and for the most part, they're just going to ignore those type of people, um, you know, we'll, we'll say they're on the extreme end, but if, if someone gets up at the podium and says, Hey, these are the facts, this is what I believe in. Uh, this is what I would like to see they're more likely to, to take note and to, to work with that person. And I think that's what, <clears throat> as an organization, BHA can, can provide you with, with that information and with those resources. So you can present a very valid civil education based argument for for hunting and fishing and conservation as a whole and the 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 more the commissioners hear that or the more decision makers hear that in california the the less they can uh, ignore our voice yeah having that uh having that shirt on that public landowner shirt and getting up and be able to hold a, a really good argument man that's a gonna go a lot farther than just you know having that shirt on walking around or going to you know the pint night that's Karen a big deal exactly big big deal so future of conservation man uh i would say it's uh for me personally i think it's optimistic um it's definitely not on a cruise control by by any any means but it's i would say the future of conservation is in our hands uh, our our generation uh right now is is going to be a hundred percent responsible for what hunting and fishing looks like 20, 30 years from now. Uh, and you know, one, one theory is we can tell our grandkids about how back in the day hunting and fishing was a pastime. And I used to do it all the time, but uh, we don't have those opportunities anymore or 20, 30 years from now, we can be taking them out in the, on the landscape and, and showing them, you know, what we grew up doing. Uh, it's kind of, you know, <laughs> but as far as a fork in a road, I, I feel uh, we could go either way as of right now. I think we're taking the, the right steps in the right direction to ensure that the future of conservation is going to be a good one. And it's going to very much heavily involve hunting and fishing, but unless we uh, do something about it. Um, it's very easily could be uh, going the opposite direction and we can say, Oh, well we could have done better. Um, and, and that's kind of my biggest fear. And that's what kind of keeps me up at night is the last thing I want to look back on, you know, at this time in my life is, Oh, well, if I could have done this or I, I could have done that to, to ensure that future generations could have been hunter and fishermen. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure I look back and say I did everything I could for the the future generations to enjoy what I had. And 
I mean, from where I'm sitting and what I see, it, it feels like it looks like we're on the right path. I mean, especially in the last couple of years. Um, but I think realizing even with the podcast, right, I started this podcast, me and Tony, and we're like, oh, let's just do a podcast. We like them. They're fun, you know, but we didn't realize we had a voice. Um, and that was one of the reasons I was excited to meet you was, you know, we, we have a voice. Let's use that voice. So no matter if it's, you know. Sam Smith that lives in, you know, outside of downtown LA and he doesn't know any other hunters. Uh, I think realizing that we can pass this tradition on and we all have a voice and we all can take an active part is a huge, huge deal, man. Um, I, I think it's going good. I know with watching BHA over, you know, the year and, um, seeing the growth there, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited. It looks positive. And, and again, I'm not in your spot or, you know, land county spot and seeing the fights, but I'm excited for, for the outlook, man. It looks great. Yeah. And, and when I say I step in the right direction, that's exactly what I mean. Uh, I know I wasn't there at the inception of, of BHA, but it's organizations like that, that are deciding, Hey, you know, we need, we need to do, and we can do more for conservation. So let's create our own organization. You know, those are the steps that need to be taken. And going back to the shows like Randy Newberg or Steven Ornella or Remy Warren that show more of the food aspect, just as much as they show the, the actual hunting and shooting aspect. you know, that's a step in the right direction in my personal opinion. Uh, <clears throat> but, and, uh, I've been in, in this game for a number of years and every time I go down to LA or San Francisco to kind of talk to, we'll say the old timers, the, the first thing they always say is, well, when I was a kid, all we had to do is hop the tracks and we were in Farmer Johnson's backyard orchard and we were allowed to hunt doves, mm -hmm. but now it's all grown up and you know, you're not allowed to hunt it because it's all closed off. You know, I don't want to be able to, to have the opportunity to say that I want to say, well, back in my day, I hunted those Padres national forest and we're going there tomorrow too. Mm -hmm. Like That's what I want to say. Yeah, definitely. This is the whole, this is the honey hole I hunted 20 years ago. Here you go, kid. Have at it. Exactly. Yeah. I don't want to be like, well, now we're parked in a parking lot overlooking that, that water source. Mm -hmm. When it's closed off, no access, no hunting. Exactly. So that's my, my personal mission. Um, you know, 10, 15 years from now to be able to say that. Mine as well, man, because passing this down and, and knowing not just, you know, I have, again, that I have meat in the freezer and I have, you know, a set of antlers or a turkey fan on the wall, but the value and in the struggles and hardships, that stuff is, is so important to that, the whole narrative. What we get from that is growth as people is, is huge. No, absolutely. And I have, I have a lot of friends that do not hunt and uh, just from, from my background and, and being in college and uh, all the travels I've done, I have a few, uh, we'll say anti hunters or, or definitely not meat eaters. Um, but I've also never heard any one of those people talk about their awesome adventure to the grocery store right. to buy meat <laughs> right. or to, to buy salad. But you know, when I, when I invite them over to my house and we have, uh, feral pig or mule deer or white tail or, or elk or, or what have you, um, you know, that's the topic for, for dinner conversation is the whole story of what we're eating. And, and that's what they're interested in, in hearing about. Uh, but 
when I go to, to other people's house that don't hunt and sit down and we have this, you know, $30 steak, you know, the, the conversation d- doesn't typically lead to, well, I went to this awesome grocery store and bought this <laughs> awesome steak. Right. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's definitely the, the whole experience as far as I'm concerned. And, and that's what, as far as the hunting community, we, uh, we're starting to do a better job of telling that story. But I think that's another step in the right direction for the, to ensure the future of, of conservation and hunting and fishing is we need to be the storytellers we were during the caveman days, because those were, I'm sure, some of the first stories ever told around a campfire was how that person got that meat that everyone was eating. Mm-hmm. And so storytelling's in our blood. And I feel somewhere down the line, we, we lost a little bit of that skill and we just need to, to regain that storytelling skill to inform people that it's not just about the kill. It's, uh, it's about the whole adventure. Yeah. Well, and if we can go down the tangent, I don't, I don't know that I want to, but industry wise or marketing wise, I mean, a lot of that is played on, you know, that quick grab of that, you know, the grip and grin or the quick grab of the antlers. I mean, I I think uh, the industry side of things has a huge play on that, man. And I hope that narrative, you know, shifts to that storytelling and then the experience. And it seems to be, but you know, that's, that's a hard push, man. Anytime you're fighting, you're fighting the money, man. It's a, that's an uphill battle. Yeah. And it was definitely a, it's gotta be, uh, it's the darkest before the light type of thing because I stopped watching those the shows I grew up on when it was hard to tell when the show commercial break and when it started back up again. So it kind of blurred into this just half hour infomercial. Right. As far as most of the hunting shows were concerned. And I, I couldn't tell if it was a commercial, if it was still part of the show I was watching. So that's personally why I stopped watching a lot of them. Uh, and then found the new media that's out there that, that, you know, obviously everyone has to have sponsors or else they're not able to, to do what they are set out to do. But, um, there's, there's organizations out there that are very dedicated to conservation. And we're happy to say that a lot of those companies are our, our sponsors, but, uh, yeah, it's just, it kind of goes back to, we need to maybe have a little reality check within the community and I think that has already started to happen. And there's a, a subgroup that's kind of taking the lead and making sure that the, the future conservation is going to look bright. Anything that uh, you want to get out there that I missed or we missed in our talking here? No, I, I think we covered uh, a lot of it. I think the only thing I can you know keep stressing is, uh, you know, I feel free to... Give, give your listeners my, my phone number or email okay. uh, because w- when I say that I'm a, an open door as far as ideas and discussion, uh, I, I really mean it. Um, and I'm, <clears throat> I'm happy to, to listen to anyone's plans that they feel VHA should be working on or you know, stuff that maybe you know, we were working on that we can be focused in other areas. I'm, I'm an open door. So uh, with your listeners, if they feel that uh, they can do something to contribute to, to BHA's success and growth, I'm, I'm going to listen to them. It's awesome, man. That, that says a lot about you and the organization right there. That's a big deal. I think that, uh, that invite should make people feel like uh, they have, you know, they have that voice, they have that say and get behind it. I, uh, 
appreciate your time greatly, man. Um, ton of information. Um, I learned a bunch. Hopefully everybody else can get behind BHA and feel the same way that I do about it. Yeah, no, thanks for, for having me on. This has been great. Honored to, to jump on with you. Yeah, we'll have to get you back on because you, that wildlife biologist thing, man, uh, we can go on for another two, three, four hours with that. If you want to talk about rabbit holes, I'm the, I'm the guy to talk to. There so I have enough them. of them and I can go down. Yeah, we love them. Perfect, man. Well, I appreciate <laughs> the time. Yeah, absolutely. You can catch up with Russell on Instagram at Russell Coleman. Make sure to follow him and BHA and get in the fight and help protect our public lands and waterways. Thank you for listening. Follow and tag us on Instagram at Western Contours. Jump on iTunes, Google Play, and Podbean. Subscribe, leave us a comment, and don't forget to hit that five-star rating. We appreciate the support, and until next time, lay them down.